following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son, Jesus. Lord, what a gift. When we were your enemies, you sent your Son to die and redeem us. When we deserved nothing but your judgment, you took on every punishment we deserved. You stood in our place. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, as we bring our lives to you today, as we search your word this morning, would you open our, our hearts, would you open the eyes of our heart that we may be enlightened to know the hope to which you have called us and the incomparably great power for us who believe that same power is the mighty force that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. Bless you, Lord, for the wonderful work you have done in our lives. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the uh, January series. I'm not Reuben, as you might have noticed. I'm a little bit taller, a little bit better looking. No, not really. <laughs> We're, uh, we're starting a new series in January on the miracles of Jesus, and we're starting this one particularly on Jesus turning water into wine. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you haven't got a Bible, the words will be on the screen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. So uh, I just want to take you back to the 1st of March 2008. Might not mean much to some of you, but to me it was a very special day. It's the day I got married to my lovely wife in the front there. Now uh, we had a ceremony at a church on the North Shore and then we went off to have our photos taken and finally ended up in Mission Bay for our reception. And had a great time. Oh, just look back so fondly with those memories. And uh, it was good to be surrounded by so many friends and family who'd come to bless and to celebrate with us on our special day. So about an hour into the reception, uh, my dad gets a little tap on the shoulder from the waitstaff who said to him, uh, the bar tab is about to run out. Imagine the look of horror on my dad's face when he realized all that money he'd put down on the bar tab was just gone. It's kind of like one of those like, oh, okay. 
So my dad graciously agreed to go and put some more money down, keep the party going, people could keep their glasses charged. But it turns out that the waitstaff had been very frequently serving bottles of wine, just passing them out. And it's amazing how quickly you can go through a bar tab when that happens. So it uh, would have been nice to have six stone water jars turn water into wine at my wedding. would have been great, but you know, saved my dad a lot of money, all of that. Anyway, this is the uh, first miracle story in John's Gospel. It's the first in a sequence that leads to the ultimate miracle of Jesus' resurrection. What I just want to focus on today is what this miracle would have meant to the first people that saw it. What was going through their mind? John tells us that Jesus did lots of miracles. He did so many different things that there's not enough books in the world to record all that Jesus did. So what was so special about this miracle that John mentions it, but not just puts it in his gospel, puts it first? I think the answer we're looking for is in verse 11. It says, this was the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. And I would submit to you today that we've made a very subtle change to that verse and many others like it over the years. In the Western world, we've read this as, this was the first miracle Jesus did through which he revealed his divinity. In other words, we've assumed that the purpose of all miracles is that Jesus does them to prove to us that he's God. And that's an assumed answer. Problem is, I don't think that's what John's trying to tell us. And before you accuse me of preaching heresy and some sort of liberal theology here, hear me out. I most certainly believe that Jesus is God, as does John. That's not even up for debate in the gospel. The thing is, John doesn't reach that conclusion from this story. John wants us to see something else. And if that's not enough, John doesn't even use his normal word for miracle. His usual word is dynamius, miracle, mighty work, spectacular display of power. It's where we get our English word dynamite. John uses a word called simia, which simply means sign, and it means what you think it does. It's a sign. It points you where you're supposed to go. It points you in the right direction. If you saw a sign saying three kilometers to Auckland, you'd think you were in the right road on the right direction. Some of you might think you were on the wrong road if you saw a sign like that. I think this is how this miracle functions. It functions like a sign. It tells people that God's plans for his people are still on track. It was a sign that God's story hadn't stalled. God had not given up on his people. That God was not finished with Israel. That Israel's story was still awaiting its ending and that God was finally bringing that to pass. And in order to understand what's going on there, we need to understand just a little bit more about Israel's story. They were God's chosen possession out of all the world, his treasured possession. They were to be the vehicle through which God would bless and redeem the world. In a way, the relationship between God and Israel at times is like a marriage. God had covenanted himself to Israel. He promised to be faithful to them, and in return, had promised them the land and many other things. And in return, Israel were also to be faithful to God. Problem was that Israel never worked. They were like a cheating husband or wife, always running after other gods, never living up to their role. In fact, they were part of the problem itself. They needed to be redeemed. So here God is in with a bit of a conundrum. But for their unfaithfulness, God allowed them to be taken into exile. And this is probably one of the biggest formative events next to the exodus in Israel's history. For Israel, it must have felt at the time as if God had handed on divorce papers and said, that's it. Cancel the covenant, I've had enough of you guys. Be gone from my presence. 
That's that psalm that says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. It was a time of intense grief and mourning for Israel. But God wasn't finished with them. So a few hundred years later, they were allowed to return to the land that God had promised he would give them. But here's the real important part of Israel's history we need to take away today. Even though they were physically back in the land, there was a very real sense in which that exile was not over. When Solomon first built the temple, God's presence came down on it like a cloud, filled the place with his glory. An amazing display of power for all who were there. When they rebuilt the temple after it had been destroyed, nothing like that happened. God's presence just didn't seem to be there. And worse still, they'd come back to the land that God had given them by divine right to find out that it was now occupied by the Romans and other foreign nations who cared very little for God and for his people. So the prophets looked forward to a time when the real return from exile was going to take place, when God would really, truly, and finally fulfill his promises to Israel. And one of the ways they spoke about this was a time when the wine would flow like a river. Can I get an amen for that one? (laughs) Take the book of Amos. After nine chapters of nothing but doom, gloom, and judgment, and you're getting depressed by the end of those nine chapters, you read the short little prophecy that just goes, oh, finally. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows and the planter by the one treading the grapes. Here's the kicker verse. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. Wonderful prophecy. Quite a relief after all the doom and gloom in that book. But when you hear a prophecy like that, it's not hard to imagine what's going through the minds of those people at the wedding. For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, this was a clear sign that their long-awaited return from exile was here. It was happening. It was taking place. And it was all happening around the person of Jesus. Isn't it strange that Jesus chose to do such an important sign at a wedding? You know, the bride and groom were about to change the way they related to each other. No longer just friends, but husband and wife. Two people coming together to live in union and harmony as one flesh, as the Bible puts it. And what is marriage but a sign of what God intends for his entire creation? Not that we would all be married in the same way, of course, but that God and his creation, God and his people would live together in close union and harmony in one heart and one mind. That's what God intended for his creation. Unfortunately, we know that that relationship has since been broken through sin and disobedience. So what Jesus is saying here through this sign is that that relationship with God and his creation is about to be redeemed. That real return from exile is going to involve a transformation and a redemption of that relationship. God is going to restore his relationship with, with his people. We see this in that little stone, those stone jars, six stone jars normally used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Seems like a small incidental little detail. But you only need to wash if you are unclean. You're only unclean if you've broken the law and sinned against God. And this is what characterized God's relationship with his people. They were unclean, impure, and needed to wash before coming into God's presence because God was pure and holy. Not that that ever took away their slavery to sin, but it was a symbol of what was going to happen. But now instead of water, these jars have wine. It's like the whole purpose for the jars has been transformed. You don't wash with wine, you celebrate with it. 
I always uh, remember this episode of The Simpsons where Homer is abducted by aliens. And uh, just before they're about to let him go, they pull out a machine and he thinks he's going to get shot and killed. But they spray him with rum. And he's like, what? Rum? And they say, what's this for? He says, so that no one will believe your story. <laughs> Goes home and he says, oh, I just got abducted by aliens. And his son's, yeah, sure, rummy boy, all right. In other words, the time for washing is over. The real return from exile is going to transform the relationship between God and His people so much so that God will cleanse and redeem and restore His people. They will be clean, permanently clean. God will clean them forever. They will no longer need to wash. That's what the, the exile, the return from exile would be a time when God would defeat sin and evil so that you would never need to wash again. That's good news. It's a reason to celebrate. The time for celebration is here. But there's another long shadow over the story, and it's the shadow of the cross. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come to Mary, which in John refers almost exclusively to the cross. You see, it's on the cross that God drew all evil to himself in the person of Jesus, so much so that the Bible says Jesus became sin for us. However that works out in his nature, fundamentally all evil and all sin converged on Jesus on the cross so that through his death, its power would be broken. It would lose its stranglehold on the world. God's people could then be set free from their slavery to sin and death. It's through the death of Jesus that evil itself is defeated. And so God's rescue plan for the world can go forward. The real return from exile can take place. So of course then John mentions that this all happens on the third day. Where have we heard that before? He frames it in light of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. On the third day, Jesus walked out of that tomb. That's the ultimate transformation, the ultimate miracle, the ultimate cleansing. That's the real return from exile, the exile to death, to evil. The Bible speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of God's new creation. And what he did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, he's one day going to do for the whole world. He's going to make all things new. Not all new things, but all things new. He's going to redeem and restore everything. God's new world is a place where sin and evil are no more, where death is out of the picture, and everything finds its life-sustaining power in Jesus. That's God's new world. And we can see here that this is a big story that Jesus is telling through this miracle, through this sign. Can you see how it's so much bigger than just saying Jesus did a miracle, therefore he's God? There's a much richer picture going on here. Maybe that's why John calls it Jesus' glory, not his divinity. Because this story is Jesus' glory alone to bring. Nobody else can bring the world and, and every human being out of exile to slavery and death. No one else can set this world free and put it to rights. No one else can bring about the new creation. That is Jesus' glory alone. And it's good news because in, God, in Jesus, God has been faithful. He's putting the world to rights. He's fulfilling His promises. He's faithful. And amazingly, we get to be part of the story. The biggest problem is there are a lot of other stories out there that try and claim this same glory for themselves. We live in a world that is full of stories trying to narrate the world, claiming to save, to redeem, to transform, to perfect. 
One such story is the, the story of democracy in the Western world. I read an article recently um, where the writer posed what you would think is a simple question. How democratic is Egypt's new constitution? Simple question, well, I don't know. <laughs> Not a political scientist. But that spawned a whole lot of other questions. So like, was it democratic enough? Uh, did it give the president too much power? Are they trying to smuggle in Islamic law through this constitution just to keep the West happy and, and make it seem like it's democracy? But underlying this entire article was an assumption that the more democratic the constitution, the more perfect the country. In fact, it seems like we in the West often prescribe democracy as a cure to all the ills of the Middle East. And we can't understand that after violent revolutions, these countries seem to go back to dictators. It just doesn't seem to make sense to us. We don't understand why don't they want to become Western-style liberal Democrats. Can't they see? Sometimes you hear this in the views of, of some very vocal and political um, atheists out there. Uh, one notorious one who's recently passed away, unfortunately, is Christopher Hitchens. I was quite surprised to read this comment the first time I heard it. Uh, Christianity tells me to love my enemies, and I don't do that. I don't want you loving mine either. Go love your own enemies. I'll get on with the business of destroying, isolating, and combating the enemies of civilization. Whoa. Those are harsh words, right? Hopefully we never say stuff like that. But he was referring, of course, to... Uh, non-democratic Muslim countries living under Islamic law. For him, they weren't just something he disliked. They weren't just something that was an enemy of his particular country. They were an enemy of all things civilized. That's quite a statement to make. But it only makes sense when we understand that democracy it itself comes with a particular story. In the West, we've implicitly believed the story that with the advent of democracy, we've arrived at a new age of enlightenment. In the past, we were living in darkness under kings and emperors, and you might want to add sheikhs and caliphs and all sorts of imams under that, if you're Hitchens. Uh, yet now, a new age has dawned. Light has gone out to the world. A new age of reason, peace, and freedom has dawned, and now we are at the pinnacle of civilization. We are the civilized ones. And those religious people out there, they are undermining the very thing that has saved and transformed humanity. This is the story we've lived with in the West. Sometimes we don't even notice it because it's, it operates at the level of subconscious for us. And it's the story that's often used to then justify Western intervention in the Middle East. We have the values we believe are true for every person in every society. We believe we should go then and instill those values in every society, even if we have to do so by force, even if we have to bomb them into submission. Do we see a different story in the wedding at Cana? Have a look at how Jesus revealed his glory. He didn't use it to secure a business deal with the bride's father. He didn't use it to become a rock star in the village. He didn't force, intimidate, or coerce anyone to follow him or believe in him. Yet the only witnesses to this miracle, guess who they were? A ragtag group of fishermen and hired hands. In other words, people whom the world considered nobodies, irrelevant, unimportant people. And strangely enough, this is how God moves his story forward. This is how God's kingdom takes ground in the world. It's not through force, intimidation, coercion, but through humility, through weakness, through powerlessness, 
through the self-giving love of Jesus, and ultimately God's kingdom moved forward through Jesus on the cross. Through all that apparent weakness, that is the power of God at work. Because we forget at times that political freedom just isn't enough. It doesn't really get to the heart of the issue. People need, need freedom from more than just an oppressive government. They need freedom from the slavery we all have to sin, evil, and death. Have you noticed that when a country is freed from an oppressive regime, those people very quickly turn around and oppress someone else? Have you noticed that people's problems in the world tend to be quite universal, irrespective of the kind of government they live under? Theft, murder, corruption, robbery, divorce, racism, marginalizing the poor, selfishness. None of that changes with the kind of government you have. What the world needs is not just more democracy. The world needs the transformative power of Jesus. For He alone can set the world free from sin. And He alone can put this world to rights. He alone can put us to rights. And like the disciples who put their faith in Jesus after seeing the sign, Jesus calls us to put our faith in Him and to become part of His story. And to leave those other stories behind. And to stop trusting in stories that claim to transform. We need to be part of God's story. This miracle was all to help a poor bride and groom who'd made the worst mistake you could make at a wedding. They'd run out of wine. I know how that feels. Um, weddings in the first century were very different. Now, we're used to a wedding that might last a day at most. We're used to, you know, ceremony, photos, reception, end of story. And uh, normally they involve, I think my dad just said amen to that, only one day, great. Um, and... They normally involve a few friends, a few family, um, and maybe about 100 people, maybe 150 if you're really lucky. And we often try and squeeze them down to, uh, to accommodate because they're quite expensive. In the first century, weddings ran on for a week. I don't even know how you can celebrate and party for a week. Unbelievable. And they involved more than just your friends and family. They involved an entire village. Man, we ran out of out of a bar tab in the first hour of my reception. We only had 80 people there. You try and supply wine for a whole village for a week. Very easy to get it wrong. Can you imagine what was going through the, the minds of the bride and groom when they first heard this, when they first realized the scale of the problem that they had? I could just see the bride sitting there looking over at her husband saying, I told him. I told him, order five more cases of wine. Just do it. We'll use it. I'm telling you, stop being so stingy. Is this what I've got to look forward to in married life? Is he ever going to let me go shopping? Oh, I did not sign up for this. And then the groom is sitting there on the other side going, oh, I've seen that look before. Oh, man, I'm in trouble right now. This is at least three nights in the cow shed for me. Is she ever going to let it go? Is she ever going to get over it? I mean, come on, I made a mistake. How bad could it be? You know, and then on and on it builds until he goes, you know what? She's always, always doing this to me. She's always against me. She's never in my corner. Why should I have to apologize? She should apologize first for being mean. And it just builds and builds and builds until it becomes bitterness and resentment. And I could see it now. The bride storms out of the bathroom in the honeymoon suite and says, you didn't replace the toilet paper. <laughs> I think she's about to kill him. 
It's got nothing to do with the toilet paper, of course. The groom's like, but I'm, oh, never mind. Just at just the right time, Jesus stepped in and he came to the rescue for this couple. And they probably didn't even know he was there. And more than just coming to the rescue, he gave them a whole new story. You know, they would have regarded this as a sign of bad luck, bad things to come in their marriage. There would have been incredible shame on their family. Every time people told the story of their wedding, it wouldn't be about how good the bride's dress was or the shoes or the food or the tablecloths or the flowers. It would have been, oh yeah, those guys, they ran out of wine. Remember them? Oh, incredible shame on their family. I know what it feels like to have something of a story told time and time again that you don't like. I went fishing with my brother once and we never remember the rods we used. We never remember the bait we were gonna take. We never remember the, the drive out to the place and getting things ready. All we remember is that I fell out of the kayak into the freezing cold water and my shoes were floating away and I was screaming, get my shoes, get my shoes. That's what it's like, you know, just one part of a story just keeps getting remembered and brought up all the time. They had a new story of hope, of forgiveness and new life. And maybe your story in 2012 was just one of bitterness and resentment. Maybe somebody had hurt you or let you down or betrayed your trust. And you've carried that hurt now for a long time. And you've allowed yourself to become a victim of that hurt. And since then, you've used that hurt to just justify any behavior you want because you're the victim. It's okay. You can do what you like because they did it to you first. And maybe you've started to put up walls and defenses around yourself and you're suspicious of people who've started to get close to you. So you keep them at a distance and you close yourself off. Problem is that this hurt then has just robbed you of your real life. The story of being a victim has just robbed you of real love and real relationships. In Christ, you have a new story. We all have a new story in Christ because in spite of all the hurt and pain that we caused God, he still reached out to us in the person of Jesus. He forgave us. He reconciled us. He gave us a new identity. He restored us to fellowship with himself. Because if anyone had the right to play the victim, it was God. Sometimes we think it's bad if one person lets us down. Try your entire creation. Try the whole world letting you down. We all have shaken our fist in God's face and said, not your will be done, but mine. I'm going my own way. I don't want to be a part of what you've got. I can do better on my own. If anyone was a victim of injustice, if anyone was truly, truly given an unjust sentence in life, it was Jesus. He's hanging there on the cross. His disciples have deserted him. His closest friends, his own people have sent him to the cross and have sided with the pagan Roman government over him. And not even worse, he became all sin for us. The only sinless man to ever walk the earth, paying for the sins of the world, paying for your sin and mine, paying for it all. He did nothing to deserve it, yet he took it all for us so that we could be saved. We could be brought out of our exile to sin and death. And if God can do all that, if God can reach out to us when we were his enemies and wanted nothing to do with him, if God can restore us to fellowship with himself, Surely then we can start to move out and forgive others. Is there a small step we could take today just to start that process of forgiveness and healing? Could you pick up the phone? Give someone a call?
Could you meet someone for coffee and just talk it over? Sometimes if it's just been a, a little squabble between you and a friend, you might find you've actually done something first to hurt them. Sometimes we think we're so innocent. I love to think I'm innocent and it's always everyone else's fault. But sometimes you'll find that they'll just say to you, but you know, you did this to me and it really irked me. And then I just couldn't let it go at the time and then I snapped at you and then you snapped at me and then, then we haven't spoken in three years. Maybe it's not wise for you to actually meet up with this person or, or, or start a relationship with them again. Perhaps what they've done to you has just been truly horrific and it's not going to be wise. But could you just pray that God would help you to forgive that person? If there's no sin God didn't forgive for you, then why should we hold anything against others? Forgive us our trespasses as you have forgiven us our trespasses. Could you pray that God would help you to move on and give you strength? doesn't mean God's going to wave a magic wand over your life and everything's going to come up roses. It doesn't mean you even have to be friends again with these people. But it does mean that we start living out of a different story. We start putting a stake in the ground. We become a sign for the world that there is another story. We become a sign to others who are struggling to forgive that there is another way and there is another story. And I used to, there's an old saying that says, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And I used to get a little bit annoyed with that, thinking, well, you know, people think that God's just going to forgive whatever they do, and then they can just go back and carry on doing it again. And it means it's like God is in the business of forgiveness, so he'll forgive anything I do. It's okay. It doesn't matter what I do. But the more I've thought about that recently, I thought, you know, there's, there's something quite biblical about that, because Jesus says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's the spirit that lives within us that convicts us of our sin points us back to Jesus, back to the cross where we find grace and mercy again. It's the Spirit of God that gives life to our mortal bodies. It's the Spirit of God that empowers us to forgive and to love. It is divine to forgive. Lastly, maybe your story has been one of struggling with God. You've thought of God as this referee on the sidelines, that He's ready to blow the whistle for the smallest mistake you make. And you thought that if you mess up just one more time, God's going to blow the whistle, sideline you, and kick you off the team. Doesn't Satan just hound you this way? It's like, you know, he says, you know those first million times you sinned that way? Well, God's grace was just enough for that millionth time. But that millionth and first time, oh, forget it, it's all over, you're off the team, that's it, God's grace is not enough. Doesn't the wedding at Cana tell a different story here? Look at those six jars of wine. Scholars estimate that that would have contained about 800 bottles of wine by today's standard. That's quite a party. That's more than enough for the rest of the party, and that's more than enough to give this couple a good start to their first year of married life. Doesn't that just speak to us of God's provision, of how God provides for us, of how His grace is always more than we can exhaust more than we need. You know, we see God's grace in the fact that He knew Israel's past. He knew their story. He knew how many times they'd run off after other gods. Yet He still reached out to them in the person of Jesus. And Jesus knows all about us. He knows all our past. He knows all our stories. He knows our habits, our addictions, our secret thoughts. He knows who we really are when no one's looking. Yet He still went to the cross for us. He still paid the price for us so that you and me could be brought out of our exile to sin and death.
You know, Jesus has paid the price and he's wiped your slate clean. More so than that, I used to get annoyed when people would say, well, Jesus has wiped your slate clean, so you better keep it clean for the rest. Otherwise, that's it. You, know, you only get one chance. More than that, God has taken away the slate. There's no more slate. There's no more bad marks against your name. If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new is here. God has made us all new. He's transformed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. That's the God we serve, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God who entered into human suffering and took it all on himself so that we might not suffer anymore. Now, the kind of God we serve is that the one that before you can even move towards him, he's running towards you. Before you can even say you're sorry, He's wrapped his arms around you. He's put his robe of righteousness around you. He's put a ring on your finger, sealed you as part of the family. And he started that celebration. He's just so happy you've come home. One of his own has returned. That's the God we serve. The God of grace and the God of mercy, not that referee on the sidelines. Nothing will ever, ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing will ever make God reject us. Because if God's going to reject you, he's got to first reject Jesus Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. So uh, this is the first service of 2013, or second service, depending if you count the one last week. Maybe it's, it's, I remember I had a staff member who said to me once, you know, start how you intend to continue. And it's kind of stuck with me over the years. Um, but maybe it's time for us all to start afresh in 2013 with the gospel of grace that we see here. Because it's only by the transformative power of God's grace that we can be made new. It's only by the power of Jesus that this world can be set free, that we can be set free. Jesus alone is our hope, and He alone is the hope of the world. This is Jesus' glory. Can we pray? Lord, as we begin 2013, may your story be our story. May our lives be rooted in the glory and resurrection of Jesus, who has won for us our salvation. Lord, you've made us part of your story. Lord, may we know the hope to which you have called us and that you've put your seal on us, your Holy Spirit that lives within us. Lord, it is not by might nor by power that we do these things, but by your Spirit says the Lord, by your grace we do everything. Lord, help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Mold us and shape us this year, Lord, and let us start afresh with your gospel of grace in 2013. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.